Morning. My name is Seth. I'm uh, one of the teaching pastors here at Woodland. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, Corey Chalmers was his name. My sixth grade nemesis. He got everything I wanted. His hair, I can see it now, perfectly parted down the middle. It was the 80s, so feathering your hair as a dude was not only acceptable, highly encouraged. Every morning when he showed his first period, it looked like an angel had personally brushed their wings against his hair. It was like, it was like the male version of Farrah Fawcett. He was beautiful. Dimples in the right places when he smiled. I went to Sears and Roebuck to get my jeans. They were Tough Skin brand. He had like the original Levi's 501s, the ones you had to wash to shrink two sizes to fit. He always looked on point and I always looked a little off. Uh, We grew up in Southern California. All the sixth grade dudes went to the mall and got custom made vans if we could. Uh, His were like always perfectly checkered every year when he would debut those shoes. We would all be in awe. One year I tried to outdo him, so I went and got custom made vans. Red they were. Uh, But then my little touch of class, uh, I, I tried to get red and white checkered shoelaces, you know. So roll up to school the first day. Do you know what small red and white checkers look like on shoelaces from about six feet away? They look pink. Red shoes, pink laces. Swing and a miss is what that's called. Right? Um, You know, I I tried so hard to be like him. I asked my mom in sixth grade to give me a perm. I had a perm in my hair. You're never going to see pictures of that. Never. Um, He got the girl I wanted. Um... He always said the right thing at the right time to the right people. He was the, he was the guy I wanted to be. He got all the good stuff. How come I couldn't get the good stuff? He was always in first place. And I was in second. And I hate second place. I know none of you can relate to that. I'm the only one here. I think that's why like, no one is ever going to make a million dollars on a big giant foam finger that holds up a number two at football games, no one's ever going to buy that thing, right? That's why we had to turn it into the peace sign because no one wants to be number two. You ever like see the Super Bowl, the losing team jumping up and down, holding up the number two? We're second place. Scientifically, it's proven people hate second place. You know the most unhappy Olympians? Silver medal winners. Bronze medal winners are glad they even got a prize. They're glad they weren't fourth place. Silver medalists live with this wound, right? I was almost number one, but I was number two, right? Now, this is such a strong human trait and characteristic. I wasn't the only one looking at Corey Chalmers wishing I could be number one and having to live with being number two. There's actually a story in the Bible about two brothers that are like this. I'm not going to have you pull it out. It's such a great story. I just want to tell it to you. But if you're maybe newer to the faith and you want to make sure that the stuff that gets taught here is actually from the Bible, it's in Genesis chapters 25 through 27. It's the first book of the Bible. You can use the table of contents if you need to. I promise the stuff's in there. I'm not making it up. But literally, it's going to sound like you couldn't make this stuff up. A guy named Isaac, a pretty famous son named Isaac, His name actually means laughter uh, because he was born to a man and a woman that were so old that when God told them that they were going to have a son, the woman texted God back, LOL. (laughs) 
And that became Isaac's name. Isaac's name was LOL. Laugh out loud was his name. You all know it's a famous father and mother, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, the father of all three great monotheistic faiths in our world. The Jewish people point to Father Abraham. The Muslim people point to Father Abraham. The Christian people point to Father Abraham. It's an incredible story in Genesis. So finally, they do have a son. His name is Isaac. And then Isaac has the same problem that his mom and dad did. They can't have children. What do you do when you want something really bad, but you can't get it? What do the people of the Bible do? When they're at their best, they pray. Isaac prayed 20 years that his wife, Rebecca, would have children. Uh, And then he must have prayed really well because God not only gave him one, gave him two sons. Now, I don't know how in the book of Genesis they could figure this out. You know, it was the days before ultrasound. Uh, But Rebecca had such a hard pregnancy. These two boys were fighting. None of us can relate to this, right? Having two children, two boys that fight, right? No one can relate to that. But they were fighting in the womb. Then finally the day comes for Rebecca to give birth to children. She gives birth to the first one. The first one, Genesis describes... Rebecca's first boy, the first one out of the womb, is a hairy child. It said he's so hairy, not only hairy, hairy with red hair, like he was wrapped in a red fur blanket. What do you name a baby that comes out looking like they're wrapped in a red fur blanket? A a baby that's really hairy, what do you name that baby? Hairy. It's not hard, right? His name is Esau. Esau literally means hairy. So Rebecca has Harry, a hairy little red boy. And uh, in, in sort of typical, sort of hairy boy fashion, he grows up to be a strong, hairy man, a hunter. And his father Isaac loves him. Father Isaac loves him because he brings delicious food. Bison burgers, quarter pounders, steaks. He knows how to hunt and he knows how to bring home the meat. And dad likes the meat, loves that boy. But there's a second boy in there. His name is Jacob. He's born second place. Now, that's not all that big of a deal to us because, like, for us, that just means in the birth order, you know, the older one's going to be dominant and the middle one's going to be a pleaser. That's what we all learned in psychology class, right? And one's going to have a birthday that's a little earlier. But in the ancient world, it meant a lot to be the firstborn. The firstborn is number one. Son number one was a big deal because son number one got the inheritance. Who gets to own the home, take over the family business? Who gets to be the boss? Who gets to be in charge? It's son number one, and his name is Esau. And Jacob wanted to be number one so bad that as a little fetus, he reached out and grabbed hold of Esau's heel, his foot, as if to pull him back into the womb and to push himself out first, because if he got out first, he would get the inheritance. He would be son number one. And you know what? His failure in the womb would haunt him for the rest of his life until it saved him. He was named Jacob, the grabber, the one who grasps for something. can also be known as the deceiver. And none of those three things would be very far away from Jacob for his whole life. The grabber, the grasper, and the deceiver. Jacob doesn't want to be second. He wants to be first. Jacob wants to get the good stuff. And if he's got to pull his brother down to do it, he will. It's a good thing these Bible characters aren't anything like me and you, right? You would never do that, would you? I would never do that. I'm a pastor. I would never pull someone out of first place so that I can get it. Never, right? 
Jesus gathered a group of disciples um, who had the same problem. They were all asking the same question that you are, the same question that I am, the question I ask every day that I wish I didn't ask. How can I get the good stuff? How can I be in first place? I don't want the foam finger second place. I hate second place. I want to be in first place. And actually, two brothers that were part of Jesus' crew, they asked Jesus a critical question. It's in the book of Mark. Let's check it out. They asked him a real simple question. Jesus, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand. Like once we all get born into the kingdom, we don't want to be second place. Now it's understood. They realize Jesus is going to get the first place. So like the gold medal is not really up for debate, right? You can't go for that one. So they realize like, okay, let's say Jesus isn't going to get a medal. He's the son of God. The medals are going to come to the 12 disciples. Who's going to be in first place? Jesus, how about me and my brother? What if we take the right side and the left side? See, it's not just in Genesis and it's not just in you. It's not just in me. It's in these earliest group of disciples who chose to follow Jesus. And Jesus pushes these disciples in the same way that He pushes you and I. He tells us there's just one way. He goes on in that story to say, like, you guys can't sit on my right hand and my left hand. He said, that's not for me to decide. But he says, like, if you want to strive for something, if you want the good stuff in the kingdom, there's just one thing that you have to pursue. There's only one thing that you have to be a gold medalist at. If you want to get the good stuff, try to be number one at this one characteristic. And he, it's actually from the Sermon on the Mount. It's the way that he starts it. And let's take a look at what Jesus says. So do you want to get the good stuff? Do you want the inheritance of the kingdom? Do you want to inherit the whole world? If you want to inherit the whole earth, there's just one thing that you got to be good at. There's one person that God gives the earth to, and it's the humble. Just one thing you got to be good at if you want to be number one. <laughs> Being willing to be number two. Or three. Or four. Right? We're in this series called Love Walk Do. This comes from the prophet Micah who challenges his early listeners and challenges us today in a world where we walk around and we see an incredible lack of humility. At the same time, I see numbers of people. I hear tons of voices outside in my own head and in my own heart. Like, God, I'm tired of the way that the world is right now. If you just put me on your right hand and my brother on your left hand, we could run the world and do a better job with it. And Jesus says, man, there's, just, there's one thing you got to get good at. One thing. It's humility. Now, the challenging thing about this word humility uh, is it often gets misunderstood. And I'm going to try to show you how. Um, when people think humility, and actually another way to translate that word in the Sermon on the Mount is God blesses those who are meek. When you think of someone who's meek, do you think of someone who's strong? No. Oftentimes in our culture, we end up with this separation. We decide that like people who are strong aren't humble because they're strong. They have authority. So strength is the opposite of weakness. So let's say this side over here is strength. And we say like what Jesus is asking us to do is to give up our strength, to give up our authority. We shouldn't have any of that. And we should walk all the way down the pathway of downward mobility. We should seek humility, which we perceive as weakness and vulnerability. 
The challenge is this isn't what Jesus taught at all. Like, let's think about this for just a second. In, in the Garden of Eden, when God first creates human beings, does God create human beings with no authority? Does He say, I don't want you to have authority and strength. I want you to be weak. Is that what God says to the earliest humans? No, He looks at Adam and Eve and says, I give you dominion over this garden. I want you to rule it. I want you to have authority. I want you to be strong because I need you to be strong. You see, strength and weakness aren't two lines on a continuum. Um, Andy Crouch, who's the editor of Christianity Today, who just gave a talk not too long ago at Art House North down in Lower Town, uh, wrote a book called Strong and Weak. And his argument in this book, which I'm going to tell you a little bit about, is that it's not that we should try to walk away from strength in order to be weak. It's that actually to be humble means you are high in strength and authority and also at the same time high in vulnerability. So I'm going to write these words up here. Authority, which he would define in his book as the ability to take meaningful action. That's what it means to have authority. The ability to take meaningful action. And then he also says human beings are designed to be high in authority and also high in vulnerability. Which he says is the willingness to take risk. Being vulnerable. So back to Adam and Eve in the garden. God creates them and says, like, I want you to have dominion and rule. I'm giving you authority. And at the same time, he makes them naked. They're naked, and the story says that they have no shame. He makes human beings high in authority and also high in vulnerability. It's funny that even the idea of being naked could be a thing in the garden. Like, for instance, in the animal kingdom, there's no such thing as being naked. Now, I know some of you guys think it's important to put sweaters and leather jackets on your chihuahuas <laughs> or cats. Whatever you do is up to you. But on a day when your, your dog, your chihuahua, doesn't have his leather jacket on, are you ever taking your chihuahua for a walk and a neighbor says, Oh, look at that dog is naked. That's not the way we think about animals, right? Animals are totally fine being naked, but something about humans being naked, it's actually a phrase, you know, like if I get up here and, I, and I'm sharing a sermon and I totally forget my point and I have a thousand people looking at me, I could literally say like, Oh man, I felt naked. Now, I wasn't literally naked, but I felt vulnerable. I felt exposed, right? Human beings are designed to be high in authority and high in vulnerability. And there's a reason for that because human beings are designed... Part of our role is flourishing. Let me give you an example. So, okay, human beings are put in this garden. Let's say that story in Genesis would have kept along just fine. The human beings have a job in this earliest garden. It's to help things flourish. You know, for the first uh, five days of creation, everything that God creates, He says it's good. That's good, and that's good, and that's good, and that's good, and that's good. Gets to the sixth day, makes a human being, looks at a human being. Does He say that a human being is good? No, He said a human being is what? Very good. Because God knows that in a human being, this human being is going to be able to do the same thing that God does. A human being is going to take good stuff and make it very good. For instance, take a wheat germ, right? 
Wheat plant grows up, has a little weed stock. I grew up in California. I don't know about farming. I'm totally talking right now. Just wheat, right? And then somehow farmers can take wheat and get to a little part of the grain by some miracle of farming that I don't know anything about. Then you can take that grain and you can grind it up. And apparently that can make flour. And now we're in a world that I know a little something about. Because you can take flour do some magical things with it, of which I don't know, and then out of an oven can come bread. I want you to know, a wheat plant is good, but bread is very good. Bread with butter is excellent in every way, right? (laughs) Human beings have the authority to take wheat germ and make bread, to take something good and to make it very good. This is what we're designed for. Or imagine a chicken, right? Chickens lay eggs. Eggs are good. Some of the eggs can make other little chickens, which is amazing. And some of the eggs can't. But did you know that you can take a couple of eggs and crack them open and you can whip them together and you can add in some like red pepper and maybe a little bit of cheese and you can put it in a pan with a little bit of heat. And then when it's about half done, you can flip it over, turn it over so the cheese melts in the middle. You know what that's called? That's called an omelet. An egg is good. An omelet is... Very good, right? Human beings can take things that are good and can make them very good. It's what we're designed for. It's because we're designed to make things flourish. It's why we're here. Let me ask you a question. How are we doing at this job? We live in a world that's filled with these good things that God's created. And God's given us a job. High authority He's given us so that we can make things flourish. When you look around our planet, are we helping each other flourish? Do you think that our world could use a little bit of humility? I'm not even just talking about our world. I'm a parent, and I raised two little kids in my house. I have a little garden of a home. I've been growing these little children that God's made, and God has made them good, but it's partly my job as a father to help them be very good. How are you doing at that? Our job when we have high authority and high vulnerability, we're willing to take a risk, We are responsible and created for human flourishing. The problem is the story in Genesis gets screwed up at the very beginning, right? Because this lousy snake comes in and he approaches the humans and says, Hey, have I got a deal for you? And here's how brilliant he is. He knows exactly what I want. He says, Seth, I got a deal for you. If you eat this fruit, you can get even more authority than you currently have. You can go all the way to the top. You don't have to live in second place, Seth. You can be in first place. If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. And you will not die. What does Satan promise? The thing that we all want. High authority and zero vulnerability. Am I alone here? You want that too? I want that. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to have to trust someone. I don't want to have to risk. I love to have high authority. I totally want to be in charge with no consequences. Do you know what we call people who are in charge with no consequences in our world? Do you know what that's called? What quickly happens? This is the zone of exploitation and injustice. When one person or one group of people rise high in authority and they lose their vulnerability or connectedness to each other, when they're unwilling to take risks, unwilling to put anything on the table when they don't have to, 
This is exactly what Satan tempts us with. I can give you this. Only problem, when you, when you reach out for this, you don't actually get it. You don't actually get it. What happens is then the human beings, their eyes are open and they realize that in spite of the fact that they don't want to be vulnerable, they have actually made themselves more vulnerable. And they get kicked out of the garden. And they move down this direction. What happens when you lose your authority and you're highly vulnerable? This is the zone of suffering and poverty. The zone of suffering and poverty. We were designed to help things flourish. And because of our own irresponsibility, our desire to be number one, we eat the fruit and move to suffering. And sometimes when we're unwilling to be vulnerable or we have enough ability or resources to go, I don't have any authority, but I don't really want to be vulnerable, then we can do what I do when I'm feeling like I don't have any authority, I can't take meaningful action, but I'm not willing to take a risk, and I just like, I'll just withdraw. I'm not going to risk it. Humility, according to the way of the Bible, is perfectly embodied in Jesus. Man, right? Was Jesus low in authority? No way. He was astronomical in authority, right? He told His disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Is there any more authority than that? All authority in the whole entire universe is given to Me. And how did He use it? One incredible scene. He, Jesus, who's ultra high in authority, meets up with a guy who in his system is pretty high too. The Romans are in authority. He's the sort of Roman leader of the area. His name's Pontius Pilate. And he's looking Jesus in the face. And he's asking Jesus if Jesus knows anything about authority. Oh, it's so funny and ridiculous. Jesus, don't you know I have the authority to kill you? Can you imagine? If Jesus just literally, the angels in heaven, I'm certain, were as infuriated in this scene as I would be. I would be off to the side. You think Peter was ready with a sword to chop off an ear? If I was one of the angels, I would have been like, Jesus, just all you have to do is just wink your left eye a half of a blink and we will be down there, right? And if the human beings thought that the flood was bad, I can only imagine the authorities and powers in heaven were just waiting like, let's demolish this planet again. These human beings are about to devour the Son of God. And we're going to stand here? Jesus, you're going to stand there? And Jesus looks at Pontius Pilate and says, you would have zero authority if it wasn't given to you by God. And it's not just Pontius Pilate. That echoes all the way back to Adam. Where does all authority generate from? It comes from God. And when you use your authority in the way that God designed you to, then it can lead to human flourishing. And if you don't, there can be terrible consequences if we are not willing to walk in humility. If Jesus was willing and able to be second place, can you imagine that? Jesus willing to stand there and go, I'll be second. It's okay. I will let Pontius Pilate be in first place in this scenario. It is ridiculous. And he surrenders to every cruel word that is said, an unjust trial, 
a whipping, every nail that was nailed in him. Philippians 2. And let Jesus' example be a model for us. With Jesus as our example, how could we ever do anything out of selfish ambition? But in humility, we should count others more significant than ourselves. Let each one of you look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Be vulnerable with each other. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Even though He was God, He didn't account equality with God something to be grasped. We met someone earlier on in this sermon who was a grasper, right? A grabber. His name was Jacob. As we trace Jacob's story a little bit further, uh, Jacob, who couldn't pull his brother back into the womb so that he could be in first, devised another little trick, right? Um, now, in the story, it says that Esau, who was able to hunt for a wild game, that his, that his father Isaac loved him. And Jacob wasn't like his brother. And the story tells us pretty clearly that Isaac didn't love Jacob. So Jacob's life, from the very earliest time, his identity was defined as, I'm the one my father doesn't love. I'm second best. I don't get the good stuff. You know what happens to a person when their identity at an early age is defined, I'm, I'm the one my father doesn't love. What can make a grasper grab and even more desperate and more ambitious when they don't get what they need? And you can fill in the blanks. Because some of you know what I'm talking about. I'm the one my father doesn't love. I'm the one my mother doesn't love. I'm the one my husband doesn't really love. I'm the one my wife doesn't love. You get older, and some of it changes. You can become the one that your son doesn't love. One that your daughter doesn't love. It happens to a person when they get this mentality that I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm the one my father doesn't love. But that's not where Jacob's story ends. His mom actually gets involved in this situation. His mom has high authority. Uh, we get a little picture in this household that uh, as Isaac slips older and older, that the power structure changes and that even though it's a patriarchal society, that the wife ends up being more powerful than the husband. She's more controlling. She kind of runs plans. She runs things her way. That doesn't happen in our world, does it, at all? Where the wife ends up being like leading the man, it totally happens. And so she comes up with a plan and says, Jacob, since you couldn't pull your brother back into the womb, and since you're my favorite, let's trick your dad. High authority with no vulnerability leads to exploitation. And Jacob and his mom, in an amazing scene that I wish, I wish J.J. Abrams would direct the Jacob movie, the book of Genesis. I would love to see this scene. Jacob walks into his room where Isaac is, this father that loves his brother better than him. He's got a, a sheepskin around him so that he feels more furry. They find a way to make him smell like wild game so he's like Esau. And Isaac can't see who it is. So he says, hey, who is that? I can just imagine the silence and the look on Jacob's face. For Jacob to look at his father, he had made a decision. If I can't get the good stuff by being me, 
then I'll pretend to be somebody else. That never happens to us, does it? We never do anything like that. So Jacob says, it's Esau. And if that's not clear enough, he says, it's Esau, your firstborn son. Son number one. The son that you actually love. And he tricks his father. And his brother, who's able to hunt wild game and is stronger than him, gets word of this. And Jacob's mom says, you better get out of here because he will kill you. At least she's honest, right? He will kill you. You should run. At 40 years old, imagine this, 40 years old, Jacob has to run away from home. With no authority and high vulnerability, he goes from exploiting to withdrawing and from withdrawing to suffering. In chapter 26, we catch him. He's in the wilderness. And it gives us a picture of where he's sleeping. He's sleeping with his head on a rock. He's got nothing. Jacob the grabber. Jacob the deceiver, the one who wouldn't take second place, who had to have first place, ends up in last place. Funny thing is about the story, though. Even though his real father didn't love him, there was, there's another father. One night when he's sleeping on this rock, a miraculous thing happens. When he's at his highest point of vulnerability and his lowest point of authority, I just want to say this. God specializes in this zone. Miracle happens. Out of the sky comes a ladder. And the ladder doesn't come down so that Jacob can climb his way to the top. The ladder comes down so that God can come down and meet Jacob. It's not the first time that we would see God coming down to meet us in our poverty, right? Not the first time. God meets Jacob and in a real subtle twist in the story, He says, it's, I'm the God of Abraham. He said, I'm the God of your father, Abraham. So your ancestor. But then when he gets to Isaac, his actual father, he doesn't say that. He said, I'm, I'm the God of your father, Abraham, and I'm the God of Isaac. As if to say, I know that Isaac is the father of Esau. I know that's the son he loves. I know where you are. I see you. but I'll be your father. I can, I can heal you if you'll let me. I know you've been grabbing and grasping for something your whole life. And I can give it to you. Just not in the way that you think. And God, this father, gives that boy Jacob the one thing that he's been grasping for his whole life. Because when a firstborn son comes out, not only do they get the inheritance, they get the family business and the house and they get to be in charge and be the boss. That's one thing and certainly that's a nice thing. But they get something else. They get a blessing. The father says a special word over that son. And so Jacob who had to twist and deceive to get the blessing of his earthly father in the desert and in the wilderness when he's at the point that he doesn't deserve a blessing is when God meets him down there and says, I can heal you and I, I'm going to bless you. I want you to know there's only one place that God can bless you. There's only one place that God can help you gain humility. It's where you are. 
He doesn't wait for you to clean it up. You don't have to pretend to be something that you're not. There's one place that God can bless you. It's in your own skin, in your own job, in your own family, in your own place, in your own life. That's the only place God can bless you. If you're trying to be something else, God can't bless you there because that's not real. You don't have to pretend to be someone else to get the good stuff. God not only says that He's going to bless Jacob, He said He's going to bless the whole world through Jacob because God cares about something on our planet. He cares about flourishing. He blesses human beings and gives us high authority and high vulnerability so that we can bless others. I just want to say one thing. Humility doesn't come from this world. If it did, we could work our way up to it. Jesus didn't come so that you and I could get a slightly better heart or be a little bit more humble. Jesus came because humility is out of our grasp. You want to grasp for something and never get it? Try doing that. Now, there's a, um, the favorite story that gets told around my restaurant is a story about me and my leadership in the early days. Our, our baker and my really good friend Megan, we were way busier than we thought we were going to be and she needed some help. And so, you know, me being the humble servant leader that I am, I was like, well, this is, you know, this is my friend and I should jump in and help her. So I jump in the bakery and start helping her. She tells me that she needs to make some zucchini muffins. So I start helping to make the zucchini muffins. She gives me a recipe. The recipe is the authority because it comes from the baker, the person who actually knows how to make this muffin, Right? Being the humble person that I am, I decide that I'm totally qualified to basically follow this recipe. So I start following it and I put in all the ingredients and I get to the end of it and I bring over the muffins there, you know, it's the batter and I show them to her and she goes, this doesn't look right. And my humility was getting tested, right? It's like, listen, I'm a very capable person. I run this restaurant. I follow this recipe and she goes, no, it doesn't look right. And so she tasted and she goes, no, this isn't right. She said, did you put enough flour in there? Now I'm basically offended. Did I put enough flour in there? So she said, well, let's put a little more in there. So I put a little more in there. She tasted it and she goes, oh, that made it worse. Now my humility is like way down here, right? So this is the part that everyone loves of this story. This is why it gets told like at least a couple times a year. She says, well, show me the flour that you're putting in there. And so I pull out this bin and we turn it around and we read the label. Is this flour? No, it's not. It's powdered sugar. (laughs) Yep, outstanding. Um, Because I was working in a zone that I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not a baker. The baker who knows what she's doing gave me a recipe to follow. And I was totally confident. I had all kinds of faith in myself that I would be able to execute this. I want you to know how often that happens in other areas of my life. Like humility is not something that you and I can generate on our own or be confident that we have the ability to. It requires a miracle. It takes a miracle to take a prideful person like me who has no idea how to make these muffins and just have me follow a recipe. Like, all right, Seth, here's the recipe for humility. But part of it is like a miracle. I want you to know, Jesus, the most humble human being that we've ever seen, was humble enough to do something that's so simple, you might be offended that I'm going to even suggest this as an action step. But at this point in the sermon, I'm going to transition. I'm going to take the last five minutes I have to give you four things that you can do 
to grow in your humility. And the first one is going to seem so obvious you're going to be offended. The first one is pray for it. It doesn't come from this world. Humility is a characteristic that you and I cannot grasp for. There's only one person who can give it to us, but it just so happens to be the person who is the best ever at it. Jesus, every morning while it was still dark, found a solitary place to go submit and humble himself to the Father. Jesus didn't have a problem being second. Whatever the Father tells me to do, that's what I do. You cannot get to high authority up here on your own power. You can't do it. And the reason I know is because I try all the time. So trust me, it doesn't work that way. can only imagine, what if all of us just decided the way we were going to start our day is we were going to pick our favorite chair in our favorite coffee bar or our favorite part of the house and we were going to start the day saying like, God, humility is what our world most needs right now. And it's what my life most needs. Will you give it to me? What you tell me to do, I'll do. Humble ourselves to like open up our Bibles. Like have some time in prayer. That sounds real simple. Any of us who have tried to devote ourselves to the life of prayer will tell you it's super simple and also super challenging, right? To say, God, I want you to lead me. Okay, my second piece of advice of humility is listen more often. Listen more often. Can't tell you how much of our world and our conversations, or never mind the digital world, how many people's Facebook feeds have you unsubscribed from because you're like, this person thinks they have everything figured out. There's actually a spiritual discipline in the Bible that Jesus challenges his followers with. It's called the discipline of secrecy. It's okay for you to do something really great and actually not tell anyone about it. You know, it's okay for you to like contribute to like a social justice cause. And what would happen if you let nobody know if you didn't put an Instagram post or update your Facebook or share a group? What would happen inside of you would be bubbling up this desire like, no, God, but I I have to let everyone know how amazing I am. And that's the thing that in us and me has to die. Can't tell you how many meetings I'm in. We're halfway through talking. I'm asking myself the question, why am I even saying this? Because I want other people to think my ideas are the best ones. That I'm the smartest and the brightest. That what I have to say is more important than what other people have to say. It's not the pathway to humility. High authority and high vulnerability. High vulnerability, being willing to take a risk. The risk of being dependent on each other. Okay, the third thing I want to say about this is humility grows best in your ordinary life. You won't suddenly transform into a more humble person when you go away to Christian college, young people. Or if you head out on a mission trip, you won't miraculously become a whole more humble person because of your location. Humility starts at home. I don't know about you, the most humbling place that I live is in my marriage. It's, it's the place that most often I'm required by the Lord to say, I was wrong and I am sorry, right? With my kids, you know, as a dad to sit down with your son and go, 
I, man, son, I blew it. I'm really sorry. The funniest thing happens. You think that being vulnerable means that people will lose respect for you, that you will lose authority. And I've come to learn over a long time, the way I lost all this hair is not genetic. It's because I've slammed this head against a wall so many times I've like rubbed all the hair off. You know how many times I've rammed my head against a wall feeling like if I'm vulnerable with people, I will lose authority. And then like Jesus like looks me in the face and says, what about the cross, dude? Vulnerability doesn't lose authority, it gains it. When you say, like, I'm sorry, or when you say, I don't know what to do. When you move down here, this is a place where God can meet you and a place where you can be independent or interdependent with others. Humility starts in your own regular life. It doesn't happen when you change locations, change jobs. Your regular, ordinary life, totally out of time. Your regular, ordinary life is the only place God can meet you because that's the only life you have. And if the Father can come down a ladder and can bless Jacob sleeping on a rock in the middle of the wilderness, then that same Father can come down and meet you sleeping on your rock in whatever your wilderness is. Because God sees you. He's your Father. He wants to bless you so that you can be a blessing because God has not given up on the vision of human flourishing. He's given you authority. It's not yours. You're not the source of it. It's His, and He's giving it to you. If you add that authority, mix that with vulnerability, and what happens is our world changes. What happens is the kingdom comes. Would you stand? Let me close in a prayer. Father, I'm so grateful to you for a character like Jacob. Who's me? Second son in a family. Always grasping for something just out of reach. Who hates to be second. Who multiple times when I was in the wilderness with my head on a rock, you came down and said, I'll be your father. I can heal you. I can do it if you let me. If you're willing to be vulnerable, I can lead you. If you're willing to submit to my authority, I can use you. If you follow my son, I can transform your heart from a prideful one into a humble one. And you can be part of what's happening in the kingdom. God, if you've done that for me, I know there's not one person here that you can't do the same thing for. I pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. Amen. Prayer teams are going to be up front if you need prayer for anything. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.